When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Wealth Ability for CPAs show. Better clients, better practice, better life. Here's Tom Wheelwright. Welcome to the Wealth Ability show for CPAs, where we're always discovering how to get better clients, create a better practice, and end up with a better life. This is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of the Wealth Ability Network. So failure is a part of business. I mean, a lot of us have really felt that the last couple of years. Um, We failed maybe a little faster and a little more than we thought we'd like to, Um, but it doesn't have to be a crippling part of business. So what we're going to learn today is we've got an expert. (laughs) I like to say that Chris is an expert on failure. And uh, I think that's a great expertise, Chris. I think that's awesome. Yeah, he wrote the book on failure, a very, very popular book called Meltdown, and uh, we're going to look at how do we prevent from melting down? How do we prevent, uh, prevent the big failures while maybe even embracing the small failures? So uh, uh, Chris Clearfield, very happy to have you on the show with us. And uh, if you would just give us a little bit of your background. Tom, I'm very excited to be here. You know, thank you for the invitation and um, you're spot on. I mean, I am an expert on failure. Sometimes I feel like I'm too much of an expert on failure, if, if you know what I mean. Um, but I will, yeah, my, my background. So uh, I wrote a book called Meltdown with a co-author who's a sociology professor. And me, I'm kind of a sort of systems engineering science-y guy. Um, I started thinking very seriously about failure during the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. I was at the time a derivatives trader. So I really had this front row seat to- Oh, so you were actually part of that failure. I was not, well, I, I mean- <laughs> I was a, I mean, it, it, you're joking aside, like, yes, although not in that way, right? I was sort of a consumer of the failure like everybody else. I worked for a small firm that did equities and equity arbitrage. You know, we call them a high frequency trader um, nowadays. Um, and, and, you know, but at the time, I mean, it was really wild to look at a company like, um, you know, like Boney, like the Bank of New York, who essentially just like a lot of what they did was held safe assets and held assets that were, you know, in trust. And you would see a company like that, who is, you know, the kind of hallmark of stability, like making really drastic moves in their share price. And I mean, that was just a kind of um, sort of a shock. I think a lot of us had our, our, some of our assumptions, simplifying assumptions about the world disrupted pretty quickly. Um, But that's the event that got me interested in, kind of failure as a science, failure as a craft. Uh, and at the time I was also learning to fly. So I'm a, I'm a flight instructor. I teach people how to fly now, but at the time I was just learning. And you know, one of the things you don't wanna do in an airplane is have a big failure. Uh, and so one of the ways that you work with that is by reading and trying to understand others' failures and, and others kind of what you, know, what you can learn from others. So I had these, these two worlds kind of converge Um, And I started really thinking about the role of complexity and the role of organizations to be able to be resilient in the face of complexity and disruption. So let me ask you about that, Chris. So um, 
you know, we have a famous, you know, saying from Elon Musk saying that failure is an option. And, you know, we have, um, you know, uh, Thomas Edison who said, I didn't fail, you know, 9,999 times. I just practiced, right? right. I mean, and, and I just needed to get it right once. And, and this was, and so, and then of course we've got our, in my case, my grandkids, and they're constantly failing and getting up and failing, and getting up, and that's how they learn, right? That's how little kids learn. So, how do you distinguish between, uh, if you would, a good what makes a good failure versus a bad failure? Because you know, when a kid, for example, falls down, scrapes his knees, come up, gets up, my my grandson says, "I'm good." That's a good failure because he's right. learning from that without drastic consequences. But if he falls off a a, a two story building, this is not good. So, right very different types of falling. So how do you distinguish? Do you just distinguish because of, of the, is it the type of failure? It is the magnitude of the failure, the frequency of the failure. How do you look at that? There's, I think two, there, there's, we can start with two kind of higher level things and then we can sort of poke around and drill down. Um, but you highlighted one already, which is the consequence of a failure. And so one of the things that I think about, like when I'm working with, I, I work a lot with big companies who have, you know, big projects, um, high stakes things, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars kind of on the line. And one of the things that I always think about is how do we break this up into something that's manageable where we are not going after a big monolithic change, for example, but where we are, are you know, choosing one place to try and implement that and seeing what happens, getting people on board with us and doing experiments and, and seeing what happens. And so one thing is really you can kind of shape your landscape so that you can be in a territory where you're going to fail, but the consequences aren't dramatic, right? And, and, and getting comfortable with that, getting comfortable with that idea. I mean, Elon Musk, right? Amazon is another company that really, I think, has lots of challenges in their organizational culture, but really does celebrate this, you know, let's go for it, and then we're going to fail, um, and we're, we're going to be okay with that. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of one thing. You think in terms of consequences and you think in terms of how do you go from this big monolithic consequence to, you know, really a series of experiments. Um, but then the other thing, and I love that you frame this with kids because I've got sort of three kiddos in my life and, you know, it's something that I, I think about a lot. And I, of course, you know, have people on my team and I see the way that they approach failure. And one of the things that happens is there's a social element to failure. Right. So we don't like talking about failure in school, you know, over and over from kind of like, you know, fourth grade on you're being given right. problems that have defined answers. And your, your job is to find that answer. It's not to explore. It's to kind of come up with the quote unquote right answer. And I think that that whole system sets up this very this real social nature of failure that the best companies, the best organizations, the best cultures they really work to overcome that because that really is, at least in, in the West, for most of us, that's the default stance that our job as a leader is to find the answer. And, and actually it's not. Your job as a leader is to be curious and ask different questions and learn. And I think that there's a real kind of stark difference between cultures that are able to, to learn from failure and cultures that sort of try to suppress it, sweep it up. Right. So, so the question is, is it a mistake or a failure, right? Because um, right. Mr. Fuller is, uh, is famous for saying that a mistake is not a failure until not admitted. So as long as you <laughs> yes. admit your mistake, it's not a failure, right? right. If you can learn from it. If you don't admit the failure now, and if you don't admit the mistake now, you now that's a failure. 
that's a sin. I mean, that, that, is, uh, that has right. higher consequences because you're not admitting it. So when you bring that, let's bring that to an organization. Now we're talking mostly with CPA firms and we're talking about you know, people with 10 or 20 employees, maybe, maybe less. So yep. how, do you, how do you look at an organization and go, okay, what types of failures are we trying to avoid um, or mistakes are we trying to avoid? What kind of mistakes actually would we like to encourage? That's, great. That's such a good question. And, you know, I think one of the ways you can get, and this is something we, we talk about in the book, there's a technique called the pre-mortem. And, it, it, you know, a post-mortem is you look back at something that went wrong and you figure out why it happened. And, and it, those are very good. And I, we do those a lot, retrospectives with my team and with other people I work with. But the, the, the chief limitation of the post-mortem is that the mistake has already happened or the failure has already happened, right? So a, a pre-mortem is a technique where you can say, okay, Let's imagine it's six months from now, a year from now, and we've had a, a really high impact consequential failure with our clients and with our client base, or we, we've missed something that's of consequence. What were the things that we missed or what led us to that failure? And it's a very subtle shift in language, but you can, you can hear that I'm predicating this on, there was a failure, now what were the causes? And what we know about the human brain is that that actually helps us generate more creative, more specific possibilities. And so that's one thing I really encourage people to do, you know, both on kind of the macro level when they're thinking about their strategy for the business, but also on the level of um, thinking about, you know, we're, we're going into, I mean, you know this better than I do, but we're about to go yet again into the busy season for CPAs, right? And so what let's imagine it's, you know, April 16th and we've missed something big and important. What was the cause of that miss? What was the cause of that failure? So that's one thing to, to think about, to sort of, um, you know, in a, in a preemptive way, try and get insights about, about your failure. I like that. How, so in it, other words, instead, in, instead of waiting until April 16th to do a postmortem, uh, right. uh, January 15th, you do that pre-mortem. I, I, I like that idea. We're actually, uh, my CPA firm, I have a small CPA firm along with uh, the network. And um, I, we are actually doing that um, second week in January. So glad to see that. There you go. We'll take that advice. We'll actually implement that. So one of the things that you talk about in your book is you talk about the dangers of complexity. So yes. can you kind of explain what you mean by that? I mean, I have my own, I actually, the term I use is, I, there are certain people that complexify things. Yes. <laughs> I, I hate that because I'm a simplifier by nature. Uh, but what are the dangers and where do you where do you see that that causes problems within the business systems? Well, let's let's talk about it first on the very high, like on the on the big level. So, um, you know, I, I, I talked a little bit of the, about the financial crisis and about really starting to understand that complexity was one of the drivers of this failure is on a systems level. Uh, and, and then what really shaped my path to, to sort of go into consulting and to, to become, to, you know, to become a service provider, to hang out my shingle was uh, Deepwater Horizon blowing up, the, the big BP oil spill. And just realizing that, it, reading about that accident, digging into the investigation reports and realizing kind of two things. One that, gosh, this accident, different industry, different people, but it's the same as the financial crisis. It is this series of interactions and unintended, unanticipated consequence that led to this big failure. Um, and, and the flip side of that thought was, you know, a, an oil and gas engineer on that rig who had spoken up and had the power to change that 
could have been the greatest environmentalist of the last 50 years that we never would have heard of, right? So, so really, I sort of saw at the same time both the, the complexity of the system and the ability for somebody to, to kind of intervene in it. So that's really at the macro level, right? Now, your listeners aren't running oil rigs, but you know, when I think about the complexity of a business, one of the things that I suspect some of your, some of your listeners and some of the people in your network might do is say yes to every kind of client that comes across their door, right? And so now all of a sudden you're in a situation, right? It's a big problem, right? So now you're in a situation where instead of being able to kind of pool your resources and improve and iterate and really tighten up your system, you're now in a situation where, you know, you're kind of saying I'm open for everybody and you're going to end up doing, you know, a, a tax return for somebody for 250 bucks and you're going to end up, you know, doing bigger work for, for, you know, local businesses that where you're charging them 20 grand a year or whatever it is. And, and you're giving them really valuable advice. And that is, it doesn't seem like it, but that's really an instance of complexity. That's an instance of, you can, none of those are bad options, right? But choosing both of them may not be the best. That, that makes sense because what you're not doing is you're not narrowing the field, which is what simplifies things, right? When you know, right. this is what I was, uh, I was telling some of our members uh, a couple of weeks ago, when you narrow who your client is, you know exactly what their demographics are, their psychographics, you, you, know, you, you, know, you know who you want, you know that target audience. So I have a very, for me, I have a very, very specific target audience and it begins with the price I charge, frankly. Um, that's right. what, that that's that's actually the starting point, and there are certain both demographics and psychographics. Uh, you know, for me, it's got to be it's got to be really interesting. It's got to be really challenging, uh, and they've got to be willing to learn. Okay, yes. because I don't want a client that just says you go do it because I'm not interested and I can't. I'm going to fail at that. So <clears throat> I do I, actually. I'm really really narrow in the and and that's why I only have a few clients. Right, I have a few clients, but that few clients produces more income than most CPAs would ever consider making. And and am I hearing that right? That that's what you're saying is look narrow narrow your focus, and you narrow the focus that actually simplifies things. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, if we can if we can play with what you just said for a minute, I think there's a lot in there because my suspicion is that that's not that wasn't the philosophy you practiced on day one. <laughs> <laughs> and that you didn't even know who those clients were on day one. So can you just talk a little bit about the failures that you yeah, went through? And absolutely. then I'm happy to share mine from a business no, 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 context. Totally. Too. So, so um, when I was starting out, I, hey, I had no business because I, I actually was fired by a big firm. And that's what I said, well, then I'm just going to start my firm, right? Yeah. And, uh, and I, I was really good. I went from two clients to four clients in nine months. So I doubled my business. Doubled, totally. Um, but at that point, I've got, I've got, I'm supporting a wife and two kids. And, uh, you know, that's not enough to do it. I went out and bought a business. And then I just started taking on clients. Um, whoever showed up, I would take. I, I was just like everybody else. And uh, we ended up um, actually having to uh, sell one of our practices because, it, it didn't fit. And it wasn't until we really understood who we were and narrowed. Actually, we, we didn't get the right clients coming to us. I, I always look at that law of attraction, right? Who are you attracting? And you're going to attract the people that you're focused on. And if you're focused on everybody, you're really attracting nobody. Right. And so it's much harder. I, I found it's much easier. I, I have to turn away clients now 
Whereas in the beginning, I was accepting everybody. So now I accept a very narrow field of people and I have to turn people away. Back then I was accepting everybody and I was just desperate for clients, yeah. right? So it, 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 it is really exactly like you say, um, you, you know, the, the more scattered you are, the less successful you're going to be. Well, and one thing I get, I get curious about, and, and I have lots of moments of reflection on this in my own story, you know, you can talk about this on the level of the kind of tactics of the business, but I'm curious for you, what was like, what were the beliefs that you had to shift internally or what were the beliefs that you shifted internally to be able to, to move through these you know, that's interesting because uh, this is something that we work with our members a lot on that a lot of this is personal development and it's got to be, yeah. I'm, I'm okay with myself, right? I'm okay with who I am. I'm okay. I'm, I'm confident in what I do. And I've never not been confident in what I do. I mean, I was with one of the big firms. I was in-house tax advisor for a Fortune 1000 company. I mean, I have a sterling resume. Okay, so that's, you know, from a technical standpoint, that's never been an issue for me. Right. But you still have that issue of, Okay, am I deserving of this? Do I do yeah. I deserve to have this? Can I can I let this into my life? And you know, then a couple of times, um, and maybe you can address this. I found I'd hit a ceiling, yeah, right? a bit of my own glass ceiling, right? And then it wasn't until there was more personal development to break through that glass ceiling. So it was always totally. about me. It was never about the customer. I think that's a beautiful way to to say it. And you know, one of the things that's embedded in that statement is just this idea of being responsible, right? Not feeling at the effect of and being responsible for your own, your own, not just your own development, but the, the way you show up in your work. And, you know, for me, I'll just share a little bit of my journey, you know, so Deepwater Horizon blows up. I'm like, wow, I can help people with this, right? I, I, I see myself having a perspective that I don't see anybody else having in terms of really thinking about complexity at the center of this. Now that turns out to be a double-edged sword because, most leaders, even in you know, big complex organizations, don't wake up and think, oh, I have a complexity problem. They wake up and think, oh, you know, I need to change the way we do reliability over here, or you know, how can we get this team to work better? And so it really took me years to shift from the thing that I was interested in to the thing that leaders, um, that I think you know, the problem, the presenting problem as they see it. Now, I think the underlying problem is still often this, this piece of complexity, but that's been an interesting part of my journey, the humility to say, okay, like, sure, I'm onto something here and there's something important here. And, and I really do believe that the, the, as we're talking about, the lessons here are pretty universal in the world of business, but being able to kind of take a step back from my own, I don't want to say arrogance, but my own sort of sense of, of, of that I knew the right way to think about this and, and start to be receptive to the clients that were showing up and the messages that I was getting. And I remember, um, well, and then of course, for me, the pen, I mean, this has been a, a you know, a, not quite a decade long journey, which is still not that long in the arc of a lifetime. Of, it's been of, four of, decades for me, pal. So right. right. I'm just a kid. Exactly. And I, and I see that, but you know, one of the things that happened for me was the pandemic happened. And that was this kind of, you know, uh, real wake up moment that said, gosh, my whole philosophy in building my business has been to go after control. And I'm actually never going to be able to be in control. And so let me start to let that go. And that was a big personal development. I mean, still is, right? I'm always going to be working with that. Well, that. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that CPAs have, because uh, one of the things that CPAs love is they love control, because guess what? Numbers give you control. 
right? All CPAs love numbers. And, uh, you know, there's this sense of security and safety within a number because yeah. going, uh, we, can, we can jokingly say two plus two is whatever you want it to be. But the reality is two plus two is really four, right? right. So there's safety in that. There's safety in that assurance that I can control that part of my environment. The challenge is, like you say, is that when you shift from being the accountant to being the entrepreneur, which is yes. really what we're working with all of our members on is be the entrepreneur, you can hire accountants, right? So be the entrepreneur, because then what happens is now all of a sudden you realize I have no control, right? I mean, like um, March of 2020 hit, right? And one of our businesses, all of a sudden, our sales dropped 80% in one week, right? Whoa, right? Now, now you see just how fast can I adapt to that? And yeah. then the other business, which is the CPA firm, we're going, not, now it, it's not the business fault. It's actually the business all of a sudden was there, but we're there to sh serve our clients. And so, you know, what can we charge for, et cetera? So, you know, we're essential workers. We're working all the time, but it's not like we're getting paid for that work, right? So you, you've, you've got, I, I think you're right. I think this, I, I think that's one of the biggest upsets with the pandemic is people feel out of control and it's a very unsettling thing. I think it's good for CPAs because I think CPAs, we need, we need to realize that we're not in control and that it's the better way if you really want to get in control. I know you talked about, I, I know you talk about this some, is to, is to really develop systems, right? So that you can get a reporting of what you need to manage. So how do systems, when you talk about, when you talk about system and you think about systems and you think about system failures um, versus system successes, how does that affect your uh, level of control? Right, because it's such a good question. Um, and what I would say is, and this is this is actually this is this phrase is not in the book. One of our kind of readers and fans gave it to us as we did the book tour. I wish we had given it to us before. It's that the antidote to complexity isn't simplicity; it's transparency. And so, you, yeah, it's great, right? This is very smart guy. This guy. <laughs> and so, I, I would I would just own it. You know, we call that. <laughs> We call that R and D, rip off and duplicate, right? <laughs> well, and, and but there's really, I mean, there's really something there in sure. in the learning, right? And I think for for me, what I, what that goes back to is, you know, I you don't want to overcomplexify things, right? You want things to be exactly as complex that you need them to be. But in whatever system you build, whether it is, you know, a kind of the way you ask people, the way you delegate tasks, to the way you ask people to do things. You need to just have a way to keep things transparent, to see work in progress, to see where it is. And what that gives you is the ability to improve and learn over time. So, so practical yeah. suggestions for transparency. Well, it really depends on the context you're working in. If you're thinking about work with a client in a financial context, what are the numbers that they really need to know? What are the numbers that they really need to care about? Um, you know, I do this in my own business, thinking about, okay, it, you know, and there's this sort of hierarchy you can build over time, right? Like, all right, I, once I've got cash flow dialed in, right? Once I understand the, the amount of money in a bank account, then I want to understand, okay, what's, you know, what's coming up? How do I think about what's coming up next? And then once I've understood that, I want to think about, okay, well, you know, what is it I need to do to be able to expand in this way, to be able to scale in this way? And what are the resources that's going to take? And, and, and so it's kind of like 
you need enough, you need the, just the right amount of transparency to meet people. You need to use transparency to drive insights rather than, you know, kind of GWIS reporting, right? GWIS reporting is like, it's like the difference between answering your email and, you know, uh, launching a new product, right? Launching a new product advances your business, you know, success or failure from the product, you're going to learn something. Answering your email every day is just a task that many of us use, myself included, to distract us from the work of a, the work of moving towards uncertainty. It's an avoidance technique for sure. Let, yeah. let me ask you about a very specific transparency item that I think is an issue for our listeners in a lot of cases, and that's price transparency. So one of the big challenges that CPAs have is um, most CPAs charge by the hour. So they can tell you what your hourly rate is, but telling you how much it's gonna cost on the front end, I think is critical. I actually am a big fan of let's set the price on the front end. Here's how much that tax return is gonna cost. And we will live as the CPA right. with the over or short. We'll totally. live, okay? But we're gonna give you a transparent price so you know exactly what you're gonna get gonna pay for. And then there are no surprises. So how does that work into your idea of transparency being the antithesis of complexity? Well, you know, I'll go back to what, what behavior does that drive for the CPAs, right? What, do, what behavior does that drive for the firm owners? And, you know, I, I work a lot with, with law firms and corporate legal departments. And so you've got the same kind of exact hourly billing, yep. right? This exact same thing. And, and you know, the amount of, um, I mean, it's not, a, it, it does not add value to the system, right, is what I would say. And so when I think about, I mean, this is back to, do you take in everything that comes through your door, right? If, if, you, if you're willing to, to stake your name to a fixed price, right? That, that really frees you up to do two things. Frees you up to improve your systems and, and simplify them. And I mean, it frees you up to measure the, like how you know, your, your profit on a, on a kind of given engagement. Um, and it frees you up to think in terms of the value to the client rather than the, the cost that goes into something. And I'm sure that I'm not the first person to talk about value pricing to, to your audience. But I mean, just to go back to it, you know, when I'm working with uh, Microsoft uh, and Etsy and Netflix, we're talking about what's the value of this project to you? What is the value of this work? Because that's, that's what's important. If it's, if it's not valuable to you, then not only is it not going to be worth the budget, it's also not going to be worth your time and attention. And so you know, I, I think it's an interesting spin on it. I've never put these two things together, but when I think about transparency and pricing as you're bringing it up, like what that actually does is that helps you drive simplicity into your system because now you're actually thinking about your place in the value chain and, and kind of how that works. Exactly. And I actually think it helps drive um, efficiency and effectiveness too because yes. what it's saying is I price this. I'm the one who has to live with this. I can't push this on. Again, you talk about avoidance with emails, right? I can't avoid the pricing issue and 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 put it on the client's back. Rather, right. what I'm doing is I'm a, I'm owning the pricing issue, and I'm saying I will live with this. And you know what? I only have to live with it for a year. So you talk about fell, you know, fell small and quick, right? Yes. I only have to live with this pricing for one year. Next year, I can change my pricing. So. Okay, for this tax return, it's X. Next year, it might be Y. No, that we're going to try this, and I think you can even be transparent as to, well, let's try it out and, and I, see, see what you think. I think that's great. And the other thing that this is bringing up for me, and when I think about how do you make systems more efficient, 
do you do you talk with your network at all about cycle time? This idea of cycle time. Uh, why don't you go through it? So, so cycle time is this idea that um, you know, from the moment you start working on a piece of work to the moment it's done, it. and 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 really, you can trace that to the it being built um, and you collecting it. That's your cycle time. Um, and so, one of the things that is important to do once you've sort of identified what you're going to charge for something, identified the, the kind of value or the average value, it is one of the things that you can do is try and reduce that cycle time as much as possible. And so, you know, just as, a, as an idea, and I don't know if this will land in, in your context, but, um, you know, have a, an accountant working on uh, 10 returns at a time instead of 50 returns at a time, right? And then complete those 10 and then move on to the next 10. Because now what you're doing is you are reducing the context switching, reducing the kind of back and forth, reducing the waiting by email. And you can actually use this as, so, you know, if, if, if you're going to have an accountant do a hundred returns or 50 returns in a season, you know, have, have all the, the 50 or the hundred returns queued up, but then only have them work on 10 at a time. And then you can even give clients heads up, like, Hey, here's how we're going to be working on this. And now all of a sudden you just have all of these drives to efficiency. And also now that you have a fixed price, you're well incentivized and you're capturing all that efficiency. No, I, I like it. For example, we have a, um, we have a goal of a three week turnaround. So from the time the client brings the information in until we get the return out three weeks. And, uh, and, and cause that would be your cycle time, right? So right. What's the cycle on this tax return, what's the cycle on that tax return? I, I, I love that. So um, as we're finishing up here and we could go forever here, um, Chris, clearly, um, so we may have to do this again sometime, I love uh, it. but, but let me ask you one last thing, because I think it gets to this complexity issue. You bring up the idea of having too many experts. And I think of it in a way of analysis paralysis, which is a huge issue for accountants. How do yes. you just in, in a few minutes, can you give us some ideas of how you overcome that? You know, one of the problems with having too many experts, particularly too many experts of the same kind is that you just get into groupthink, right? You're not willing to say you don't know, you're not willing to question things. And you know what that does in, in more complex environments, it means you're less likely to see opportunities, you're less likely to see challenges and threats, but it also means you just, you just adopt the conventional wisdom. So if, if, if everybody you're talking with is an accountant and they're you know, accountants, that you, you're just gonna do things the same way that they do. So I think there's just such value in kind of going after an injection of intellectual diversity. You know, talking about cycle time, there's a book that's not mine that I'll recommend to your listeners, which is called The Lean Law Firm. So different audience, but man, these guys are sharp. They've got a, they've got a good podcast. I mean, I, I, I recommend it because I, I just see so many kind of, um, so many crossovers. That's just an example. You want to be always working at the state of the art and being surrounded by a bunch of experts that are just like you isn't, isn't helpful. So be in, be in a network uh, like yours, Tom. I mean, that's what I would say to people. People are on the fence about joining your network. Join Tom's network, right? Like you're going to be around other people that are curious and want to learn. And you're going to be around Tom who's thinking about this stuff in a way that is not conventional, not business as usual. And that's hugely important. Um, I think that's a big chunk of the don't surround yourself by uh, by experts. That's that. If I were to give one takeaway from that, that would be it. I love that. This has been um, outstanding, Chris Clearfield. The book has meltdown. Uh, Chris, where can we get more of you? 
So I'm on uh, LinkedIn, Chris Clearfield, Twitter at Chris Clearfield. Um, you can go to meltdownbook.net and you can download a free sample of the book. That also will get you to an opportunity to join my mailing list where I write about change, personal development, transformation in this kind of professional context that we're talking about. So awesome. that might be interesting. And then, um, yeah, I look forward to staying in touch. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. Uh, just remember that you know, th this whole idea of complexity, I'm fascinated by this idea that it, that's where the, the, the failures come that we, that we have a tough time getting past is, is when there's so much complexity, we can't even see what the failures are. We can't see the little failures. And, right. uh, and I love the idea of transparency, transparency be the opposite of complexity that um, seriously, I mean, you, uh, at least a dinner, you owe this, uh, this, uh, this reader. This, yeah, totally. <laughs> so I, I, I love that. I, I think that um, as CPAs, especially, we can be a lot more transparent with our clients, with our staff, and, and most of all with ourselves. And then when we do, I think we're all, always going to end up with better clients, better practice, and better life. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the WealthAbility for CPA show. Better clients, better practice, better life. To learn more, go to WealthAbility.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>